Welcome to the Agent of Wealth podcast with Mark Boudis from Boudis Financial. In this podcast, Mark helps guide you towards financial freedom, ensure you never run out of money, and create a balance in life that prioritizes what is most important to you. Join us for this journey as Mark draws from years of expertise and guest experts to solve the multiple wealth building challenges involved in your financial life. Welcome back to The Agent of Wealth. On today's show, we brought on a special guest, Dr. Michael Gratiser. Michael's a sleep scientist, sleep researcher, and sleep psychologist. Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Mark. Uh, sounds strange to say, but I'm excited to talk about sleep today. It's a topic of part of a series that we're doing on health, where we're, we're going to talk about how being healthier can help lead to living a better life. And I think today's topic of sleep fits right in because we all know that sleeping can be challenging, lead to increased stress. And obviously, we all want to get better sleep, but and some of us know what we need to do and some of us don't. So looking forward to it. Absolutely. Yeah, thanks. Is it is it really a large problem out there of people not getting enough sleep or getting the wrong type of sleep? Um, it appears so. If you look at the data, uh, especially if you compare the data to previous decades, um, there is a incrementally less sleep and it's a small amount but you know if we keep going at this rate we're really going to push it and when i say that uh, i'm really talking about western societies so you know say for instance i do some work uh with colleagues over in south korea um and also say for example uh singapore and hong kong now you look at the data there and it's absolutely shocking so you know australia and the us were not there yet but that's where we're headed. Like, say, for instance, you know, I was at a conference on the weekend virtually and having a look at some of the data that they collected, you know, seeing teenagers that are getting to sleep on average at 2 a.m. on a school night, you know, yeah. in Singapore, that's the sort of stuff that uh, is seems to be happening over there. And when you're getting to those really chronic low levels of five, six, maybe seven, but, you know, around six hours of sleep, you know, five times out of seven times a week, that's when you really are pushing the limits and you're getting incredibly unhealthy. From the data that's out there, is there, you know, can you pinpoint it to this is the reason why it shifted to that point out places like Singapore and Hong Kong? The mentality and the culture there seems to be the big thing. You know, like if you go over there, like say, for example, when I did go over there, um, I arrived at the airport at midnight on a Wednesday and, you know, they hushed me into a limo to take me to the hotel and I can hear this buzzing sound and I'm like what the heck is that I pull down the window and we're going around this roundabout that has these tropical trees and you've got these like three guys with chainsaws that are pruning it at midnight and so that's the mentality <laughs> and and then, then you sort of uh, talk to some of your colleagues and you know they've had for example some of the worst cyclones or tornadoes that have gone through there and uh, you know absolutely smashed through a lot of buildings there's glass there's paper there's trees falling down everywhere and then certain billionaires over the radio are saying, get back to work, you know, and some of my right. colleagues are saying that they're in their suits, carrying their bags, stepping over trees and, and so wow. forth, and they cleaned it up really quickly. So it's a, it's almost like, you know, what you would imagine when you see ants, you know, it's just like, oh, okay, the rain's gone, let's get out and get cracking yeah. again. So um, wow. definitely there's a cultural aspect there when you're looking at the eastern countries and maybe there's a mentality that might start to creep in for some of us in Western society where we're just pushing the limits. You know, we're trying to fit as much as we can in our day. Sure. Does the data show that we are trending 
maybe we're not to some of the Eastern societies, but are we trending that way? Yeah, gradually, uh, which is a real shame. And, you know, like I also work with uh, teenagers and their sleep. And over in the States, like one of the biggest issues is just the early school start times. And sometimes, you know, the older adolescents are getting up even earlier, which is totally restricting their sleep. That's one of the biggest contributors to their lack of sleep on uh, school nights. So, uh, you know, there are changes that can be made. And I think California passed a bill in the last couple of years that's allowed uh, school start times to start later there. So you need to sort of see more of that. But even for adults, I think, you know, it can also be up to the individual um, and make some small changes to try to just grab whatever you can. Does it seem to be like related to like the family structure where if the parents tend to go to sleep later, wake up earlier, it's that habit is passed down to the children or do you see the no correlation between the two? Yeah, so we work with families. Uh, so just as background, you know, we've got a sleep clinic and uh, we've had that open for 15 years and it's focused on pediatrics, so 18 years and below, but we also see adults. And I would say that one thing that I see when the children are coming forth with their sleep issues is that one of the parents also had sleep issues. And it's not necessarily just the social modeling, you know, this is what mom and dad do and this is the way they behave with their sleep. It's also the genetics behind it. Um, Say, for example, there was one mum that came along and her two-year-old was getting really not enough sleep. Like we're talking about eight hours. Um, Mm -hmm. The mum was absolutely beside herself, tired, and this kid was still buzzing. But the dad, he could survive on four hours of sleep. So he had this real sort of genetic predisposition to have short sleep and be able to cope with that. Um, and not everyone can do that, that's for sure. You know, there are some individuals in our society that can. Um, so that's one example, an extreme example, that we do pass down our genetics. And it's not just the amount of sleep. It's also our sleep timing. It can be whether you're an owl, an evening type like myself. I've passed that down to one of my sons. So, you know, it's a bit of a struggle to get him to bed and, you know, say you need to get some sleep because he's just not feeling biologically sleepy enough. So it's a combination of the genetics and the sort of, socially what we're doing and what we're modeling to our kids does the the time that someone sleeps does that matter so for example like you gave your you being a night owl um if you got eight hours you know starting at 8 p.m or starting at 12 a.m does it make a difference at all in terms of that you benefit from sleeping if it's the same amount of time yeah if it's the same amount of time then that's fine you're getting the amount of sleep that you need to sort of get the problem arises when you have to get up at a certain time to go to work or go to school. That's when you start to have your sleep cut and that's when you start to get into issues when it's cut like five days a week, for example, which has been interesting with, you know, the coronavirus because if you look at the data and what's happened is that people have been self-isolated, they're doing school from home, they're doing work from home, which means they don't have to travel and not being able to travel means people have actually slept in a bit and they've actually caught up and getting more sleep. That's what the data is showing whether it's babies, whether it's teenagers, whether it's adults, we're actually getting a little bit more sleep. So there's been a bit of a silver lining there. How do you know how much sleep you need? And is my, my the amount of sleep I need different than what you need and what someone else would need? Yeah, there's definitely, I mean, if you think about the amount of sleep that people need and how they differ, it's like height, for example. We're all different height and we all differ in the amount of sleep that we need. And People are very much focused on sleep and when people come to us uh, for their sleep issues, we certainly do help them measure sleep and we track that as we do some interventions and and teach them some techniques. 
But really, it's about how you feel the next day. You know, are you sensing that you're feeling better, that you can cope better, that you're not sort of dragging your heels, that you're not sort of feeling like shutting your eyes at a meeting or sitting down when you've got a moment, uh, not making rash decisions as well, not feeling so anxious or depressed? Because uh, as soon as you start to, you know, chip away at sleep, especially on a chronic basis, you start to get a lot of issues going on um, and the body mentally and physically starts to not cope. Is that how you treat it? You look at, all right, what, the, what is the issue? And then try and kind of diagnose it from there. Exactly. So what we sort of do is uh, we look at things in what's called contributing factors. Like what is the main factors that are affecting this person's sleep? So usually when someone comes to see us, we'll get them to fill in what's called a sleep diary. So they track their sleep, just standard pen and paper sort of thing. None, none of these sort of garments or Fitbits, et cetera. Um, and uh, then we'll do probably a one-hour session and do a lot of Q&A. Um, if someone's waking up during the night, usually we categorize it in our minds like, okay, is there something internally waking them up? Are they too hot? Are they experiencing some sort of sleep apnea and snoring? And that can then alert the brain that they're not getting enough oxygen and then that wakes them up. Or is there something external that's affecting them? Is there a noise? Is there a, As soon as someone moves uh, in their bed, there's a 33% chance that they will wake up. Something that sort of uh, really gets uh, missed, and I think the corona again, the coronavirus has helped us think about this a bit more. Is that pets have advantage um, during this uh, situation? You know, they're having their owners at home a lot more. But uh, so many times we've got caught out that people are having pets in the bedroom or even on the bed, and as soon as uh, there's movement on the bed, people will wake up. So that's just one example where we're trying to explore what could be waking the person up. And furthermore, like when people are trying to fall asleep at night. There could be a whole whole host of things. It could be, are they having too much evening caffeine? Not necessarily during the day, but the evening caffeine, is, the data is showing that's what's affecting them. Is it a case that they're going through quite a stressful period? Is it a case that they've learned this sort of hyper arousal and insomnia uh, when they're going to bed, for example? Or have they got a body clock where the body clock has drifted a bit later? So instead of sort of saying, you know, you need to fall asleep at 10 p.m., it's drifted a bit and the body clock is now biologically saying it's time to sleep at midnight, which is what happens with teenagers, but it can also happen with adults. So once you figure it out, is it remove whatever is causing the issue? Yeah, what we try to sort of uh, do is we try to firstly teach um, with education to the client to sort of say, okay, we believe you're having this problem because this is the contribution to it um, and this is why. So they have that knowledge with them because really what we're trying to do is to say we're trying to pass on all of our knowledge onto you, not just how this happens but what you can do about it. So that way once you've done it, in case it comes back, you can do it again so you don't have to come back and rely upon us and be dependent. And so we'll go through some sort of education. So say, for example, you know, if it is coffee, we'll educate them about coffee and we'll sort of say, you know, what happens in terms of how much caffeine is in different products. Sometimes people don't realise there's a lot of caffeine in dark chocolate. I had one adult that would, after dinner, have a whole block of chocolate and it was dark chocolate and it was like oh okay i better cut back on that uh he didn't want to have you know white chocolate which has barely anything but you know he liked the taste but we just had to make some modifications um and for teenagers for example when they're falling asleep because of their body clock you know we have to match it with certain techniques so for example one technique is bright light therapy in the morning so our body clock, it's like resetting the stopwatch of our body clock. So we have to expose them to bright light in the morning and gradually wake them up earlier and earlier. So we're sort of pushing their body clock back into the right place. 
Another example for that is melatonin. Melatonin can help to signal when to start sleeping. So we try to sort of time it at the right sort of time for their body clock when it's shifted too late. And then we'll get them to take melatonin gradually earlier. So we're sort of pulling their sleep back into the right sort of place so they're falling asleep earlier. So it's really a case of trying to identify those contributing factors and then matching that with a technique that we know works. So is it more trying to change the habit or, or wean them into into it rather than kind of cold turkey and stop short of whatever that stimulus was? Yeah, yeah. I mean, this sort of stuff takes practice. You know, we, we've done clinical trials in our clinic where, say, for example, we've done clinical trials for school-aged kids between 7 to 12 years of age. We've done clinical trials for teenagers. And when we look at how long they've had the sleep problem for, usually even for those two groups, it's about five years. When we've done clinical trials for adults, you know, some of them definitely over a decade, what we managed to do is we work with them probably for a six to eight week period. Um, so they have to learn these skills, put them into practice. And as they come back each week, we have a look at their sleep diary and we just fine tune it as they go. So we're just making these sort of small modifications over an eight-week period. But if you stand back and look in the forest, that's incredible that you can make these changes within eight weeks that you've had for years. Um, sure. So it is possible to do. And and the really unfortunate thing is that, like you sort of mentioned before, I mean, I've been doing science, sleep science since um, 1998. So I know the research side of it. I produce the research. I know what works. And sometimes when we're testing things, we find out things don't work, even though people are out there saying, this is what you need to do. And so that's really what's getting lost here. So say, for example, we were the first uh, research group to test whether if you are having a bright screen in front of your face, does that actually affect your sleep and the time taken to fall asleep? We were really surprised because we got teenagers in the lab. We gave them a bright screen for an hour in bed. In the hour before bed, we gave them a dim iPad and we gave them an iPad that reduced the blue output and made it more orangey. And there was no difference in the time taken to fall asleep. And we thought, oh, geez, we're not going to get this published and all this sort of stuff. <laughs> we did. But then what happened is that a whole bunch of other people started testing it and found the same thing. And yet we're trying to get that message out there that it's not really going to affect your time taken to sleep. Even last month, a study came out about the Apple's night shift mode. And right. again, the difference in time taken to fall asleep was 30 seconds, whether you had it on or not. Um, so right. it's it's really... Uh, unfortunate that there are a lot of people that have jumped on the bandwagon about sleep. The good thing is that they're getting the message out there of how important sleep is, but some of those messages are wrong. And uh, I, I hopefully for your listeners, they can sort of start to sort of think about how long has this person been working in this area and how much have they even done of any of the science? Uh, yeah. It's really important. And you mentioned melatonin earlier. I'm reading also about CBT oil. Is that a potential that that's, there's research being done on whether that can help sleep mm-hmm. as well? Absolutely, yeah. So, so with melatonin, um, some people sort of uh, don't understand it uh, so well. I mean, in Australia, we have to actually go to a GP to sort of get a prescription to get it. It's not on the shelves like it is over in the states. Um, but really, it has two purposes. One is it can make people feel sleepy, but usually that happens to school age kids and young children. Once you sort of get into the teenage years, it's uh, and adult years, it starts to lose that sort of sleepy effect. Believe it or not. Um, if people are feeling sleepy from melatonin and they are an adult, it can sometimes amplify some other sedative effects. So in other, in other words, if people are, say, for instance, having a couple of glasses of wine at night and then they go to bed and they have their melatonin, well, it's going to enhance the effects of the uh, alcohol. Or if they're having other medications that might have, again, a bit of a sleepy effect, 
then if they're having melatonin again, that's going to increase that effect. With teenagers, you can actually use melatonin to change the body clock. It can be used for shift workers to sort of help them change their body clock for their shifts. It can help people for jet lag when we get to travel again. You know, you said you wanted to go over to New Zealand. Well, that's going to be a time when, you know, sort of get out the melatonin. And if you time it right, you can actually um, take less time to sort of get into the right time zone when you get over um, from the US to New Zealand. But with CBD... Uh, the research at the moment is showing it can help people fall asleep quicker and sleep better. But like with other medications, it seems to be a bit of a temporary effect. Um, so certainly something that you would take in the short term, like for about four weeks, for example. Um, chronic use of it seems to mean that the effect starts to slightly wear off. But the other effect that seems to happen is that it seems to decrease a component of our sleep called REM sleep. And REM sleep is really important. It's it's important for your learning and memory. It's also very important for your emotion regulation. So if anyone's using CBD, it's best to sort of do it in short-term bouts, if anything. You, you mentioned limit caffeine before going to sleep. What about exercise? Is there any studies that show exercising before you go to bed it can cause trouble getting to sleep? This is really fascinating because um, we were always instructed like, 15, 20 years ago, you shouldn't exercise before within three hours before bed. The whole idea is when you exercise, you're increasing your metabolism. It's like you're burning the engine. You're increasing your body temperature. Um, my PhD was actually looking at body temperature and thermoregulation, sleep and insomnia. And certainly the hotter you are on the inside, the more alert you are. So it theoretically makes sense that if you're exercising before bed, you're going to increase your body temperature, increase alertness, and it's going to mean that you have difficulty falling asleep. However, I looked at this literature this year, and one thing people might not be aware of is that you can get these individual studies, but sometimes you'll get what's called a meta-analysis. And a meta-analysis is a paper that gets all of those individual little studies, it gets all of their data, and it analyzes it all together. And this one study, this meta-analysis, managed to look at what happens if you exercise three hours before going to bed. Well, it doesn't affect the time taken to fall asleep is what this study, this meta-analysis is saying. Furthermore, if you have a tendency to wake up during the night, it helps you to not wake up so much. So it's gone in complete opposite. The data is saying sure. something completely different to what we were originally taught. Yeah, that's interesting because you, you would think, okay, it's like you said, it's exercise. It's just getting everything amped up and it just takes longer to wind down. Um, to shift it a little bit, what about uh, sleeping babies? You know, new parents and even parents with kids that are a couple years old, do you look at sleep issues and is it even considered an issue or is it just like a known, you know, babies, young children are just going to have issues sleeping with it? Or are there actual strategies that, you know, someone can take to have their children or babies sleep better? Yeah. Um, this is the one area, the only area that I've received death threats from. <laughs> we go to work with um, infants. And so if there's any parents out there, there is a massive controversy. Controversy is whether you do these sort of sleep training techniques where the children cries. Um, and people can do this. They can go on. I always encourage people to go to something called Google Scholar. It's like Google, but it's just you search for research studies. And even if they put in my surname and the word infant sleep, that'll take them to the first study, which is what we did to test does it actually cause these issues if you're doing this particular type of sleep training, which is to basically go through a schedule where you are responding to your child and you do respond immediately to your child the first time that they cry on the first night, but then gradually you're taking a bit longer 
to respond to them. And the reason being, you're giving them the opportunity to learn to fall back to sleep because probably what happens is the parents have tried it inconsistently. They'll try it on one night or they'll try it now and again. But if you do it on a consistent basis, you know, night after night after night, what we believe happens is not only does a child learn to fall asleep, but like any adult, they start to get slightly sleep deprived and the biology kicks in. They start to get that pressure to sleep and that helps to take over. So what Mm -hmm. we constantly here is that it takes about three or so nights and the baby starts to sleep better but it's just a scary thing for parents to do they're worried of if they're going to harm their child our studies show that that sort of technique did not differ in terms of the any increases or changes in the baby's stress hormone cortisol furthermore we followed these babies up 12 months later to look at their attachment with their parents no difference between the control group and those that were sleep trained, no difference in behavior or emotional issues as well. And that's and so that was the first study that tested that. There's more studies coming out showing that as well. And we had to be very careful when we came out with this particular study because we knew we were going to get slammed by the people that said, don't do this, you're harming your child, you're doing the right. best possible. And when we looked into the data, the only, uh, I should say the scientific literature, the only thing that was harming babies was sleeping with babies in our beds right and the argument is that you know this happens all around the world but in western societies we have softer mattresses and we have a higher bmi and we're more likely to smother compared to say you know japan when they're on a tatami mat for example or in africa on a hard floor on you know on a piece of carbon right. again i would say to parents that uh, you are the best ones to know if your child's got a sleep problem most children will go through sleeplessness for the first six months of life. And then by about six months of age, they develop the biology, the sleep pressure and their body clock as well. Now, if they're continuing to have a sleep problem from six months onwards, that's when intervention, I believe, can happen. Mm-hmm. But they are in the best position to do it. And there are resources out there to do it as well. As the, the kids get older, um, you know, obviously for an adult, you can tell if you're tired the next day. But how do you t- how do you tell if a, a child has a sleep issue if maybe they're not forthcoming and saying they're tired? Is there things to look for? Yeah, it can be almost like the complete opposite. Like, you know, for adults, we'll feel a bit sleepy, lethargic and, you know, lacking motivation. But especially for, you know, young children, preschoolers, they can have almost the opposite and they go almost into a hyperactive ADHD type of uh, situation. Um, even something that sometimes gets missed is that they can have sleep apnea themselves Um, and where an adult with sleep apnea will usually feel quite sleepy and you know struggle to stay awake uh, a preschooler or a young child will actually show almost like ADHD symptoms and sometimes that can get misdiagnosed and they're put onto some medication when in actual fact you know that's their reaction that's their version of sleepiness and usually what happens is that when they have what's called you know their tonsils and adenoids removed which is allowing them to sort of breathe better. So many parents will say, you know, it's a completely different child. So that's probably also another thing for parents to consider that if they've got a child that's really sort of climbing the rafters just before bedtime, you know, something like that could happen. It could be their sort of way of expressing sleepiness. But certainly, you know, it is also a behaviour. So you treat it like a behaviour as well and also try to manage that before it sort of continues to get worse. I have three kids. One of the approaches we take is to try and tire our kids out before. Is that a good approach or is that even something that's worthwhile doing? Well, hopefully one thing I can leave, you know, as a bit of education, this is what we tell our um, our clients, is that there are, if we look at the contributing factors to sleep across the lifespan, 
there's this thing called a two-process model of sleep. So there's two biological factors, and I've already sort of mentioned one, which is the body clock. That body clock will tell us when we're going to fall asleep. The other one is called sleep pressure. So the longer you stay awake, you're building up the pressure to sleep. So for example, with adults with insomnia, you know, they have a tendency to sort of just go to bed and try to get to bed as much as possible so they can capture as much sleep as possible. But the thing that ends up happening is that they are awake in bed a lot. It's a counterintuitive approach, but we get them to stay up longer. And by doing that on a consistent basis, they're falling asleep quicker after a few nights. And you can apply the same process to school-age kids and also to preschoolers. you just got to be a bit careful with preschoolers because they're sort of in some ways still developing. Some of them can get overly sleepy and start to almost have these things called parasomnias. So, you know, almost like half an hour after they've fallen asleep, they'll start to do some sleepwalking. They might have this night terror, which sounds like they're having a nightmare, but they're really unresponsive. Um, But by staying up a bit later and just finding out and experimenting just incrementally where the best bedtimes are, whether you're an adult, whether you're a child or teenager, that's a one good approach. As long as you are getting up at the same time each morning, even on weekends, and you're just manipulating the other variable, which is your bedtime, that's one approach to sort of seeing if you can actually sleep better. I guess that concept, what if I have, you know, what if someone is out late? Is there, is there, is it valid? Can they catch up on sleep over the weekend or over a period of time? Is that the approach that someone should take? If they, let's say they only get three hours one night, do they try and get 12 the next and average it out? Or is that even possible? Yeah, and there's so many variations of it. And again, probably the best model is really looking at teenagers once again because they get the most sleep deprived if you think about the fact that biologically they're falling asleep later because of their biological clock, their delayed circadian rhythm, but they have to get up for school and they're doing that five times a week. Now, you know, sometimes the question is can they catch up on the weekend? You know, if they and they do get more sleep on the weekend, that's what the world data shows. But two days in a row of more sleep is not enough to catch up. So you'll see over a term or a semester, they are incrementally getting worse and they need right. two weeks of recovery sleep and that's when things get better. So in some ways, yes, you can recover, but you need a lot of time to recover. You can't just do it in a weekend, for example. Right. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, okay, so we're just about out of time. Thank you for being on the show. I know you have a, a sleep clinic. How, how best can someone reach out to you, find more about you know what you do and what your company does? Yeah, yeah. Thanks for that. So um, if people want to Google winksleep.online, that's our website. Uh, And the website's really got two purposes. It's there for people who certainly have issues about sleep. They want to learn more about sleep and, you know, help their own sleep. So we've got some e-books on there, some resources, and they can also reach out to us. Um, we're trying to build up a network uh, of people around the world as, uh, as well. Um, there are members that are health professionals that are working in the area of sleep um, that we're training as well. So if you are a health professional, you want to learn more about sleep, the website is also there for you to start to learn some of these techniques. We've got online courses, for example, and we provide ongoing supervision. Um, so yeah, have a visit. Um, we've also got a weekly blog that we come out with because we're really passionate about passing on the scientific knowledge like you know when i said about the blue light from the screens you know that message is getting missed so we try to do these blogs so people can try to understand it that way so certainly you can subscribe to that for free and um, start to learn about sleep that way even if you want but um, as long as you can start to be more aware of your sleep um, there are ways to change it which is really cool great yeah you gave a lot of great information really appreciate you being on we'll link to to all that in your website in the in the show notes And yeah, thanks again. Thanks, Mark. Appreciate it. All right. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in to today's episode. 
Thank you for listening to the Agent of Wealth podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Boutis Financial. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for professional financial planning and investment advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investments and financial planning.